Hello, friends. The subject of today's episode is The Yellow Kid, a pioneering comic strip from the turn of the last century that might tell us more about what was really going on in the 1890s than anything written in the actual history books. Our theme for these last few episodes has been yellow journalism. And it's no coincidence that we're talking about the Yellow Kid today. You see, the Yellow Kid was already famous before the term yellow journalism was even invented. And that's no accident. It turns out there's a lot to say about this otherwise forgotten pop star of American folklore. And as a result, this episode is going to be a lot longer than usual. Which means we're going to break it into two parts. Today, part one, the yellow kid arrives on the scene on this episode of the TV Room. This is the Dewan Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like me. Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. When last we spoke, the year was 1895. William Randolph Hearst had come to New York City looking to pick a fight with Joseph Pulitzer over who would get to wear the crown of being the greatest newspaper publisher in the nation. Within months, Hearst had lured away three of Pulitzer's top editors to come work for him at the New York Journal. And Hearst was just beginning. In 1896, he made another raid on Pulitzer's stables. This time, luring away a man regarded as the nation's, and probably the world's, premier newspaper comic illustrator. A guy named Richard F. Outcault. Outcult is considered to be the father of the modern comic strip, at a time when comic strips were becoming a big part of a newspaper's appeal, maybe the biggest, and were directly credited with driving up circulation numbers for their respective papers. None more so than Outcult and his immensely popular comic strip, The Yellow Kid, which until then had been running in Pulitzer's New York World, where it had originated a year earlier, in 1895. Hearst and Pulitzer may have been engaged in the literary version of a knife fight with each other, but the 1890s were a time of windfall profits for the newspaper business in general, and Hearst and Pulitzer both made out like bandits. The only thing that got savaged in their knife fight was the truth. We'll get into more of that in the next episode, when we talk about Hearst, Pulitzer, and their advocacy of war with Spain over Cuba in the mid-1890s. By that time, 
the term yellow journalism had been coined and had come to stand for the increasingly breathless and outlandish headlines that ran in the New York press in order to foment war with Spain and to sell more papers. And that shoddy relationship between journalism and the truth is what yellow journalism would continue to represent to succeeding generations, as it still does today. As mentioned on the last episode, today we might associate the yellow and yellow journalism with cowardice or some other form of moral deficiency. But it actually started out as a reference to the color comic strips that were becoming so popular in the 1890s. And to one strip in particular, you guessed it, The Yellow Kid, by our person of interest on today's podcast, Richard Outcall. The name Richard Outcalt is largely forgotten to history, but his legacies are definitely not. Outcalt gave us the modern comic strip as we know it. He was probably responsible for the term yellow journalism itself. And one of the comic characters he created over a hundred years ago is still with us today. It's not the yellow kid, but another impish little boy named Buster Brown. If you know of Buster Brown today, it's probably from one of those shoe stores in the mall. When I was a kid, there was a Buster Brown shoe store in the mall. I may have looked in the window out of curiosity, but I never went inside, and neither did any of my friends. It was the swinging late 70s, and we weren't in the market for anything but tennis shoes, preferably in a nice satin blue with red stripes and white piping. As far as we could tell, Buster Brown was where you went if you wanted to rock the Little Lord Fauntleroy look, which no one ever did. Going to Buster Brown's for shoes was like taking your Baskin Robbins ice cream money and buying ribbon candy with it. It just wasn't done. The only plausible scenario that would find you in Buster Brown is if you were being taken clothes shopping by Mrs. Howell from Gilligan's Island, or a spinster aunt visiting from back east. But Buster Brown must be doing something right, because it's still in business. Think about just how few turn-of-the-century personas still exist on packaging and everyday culture today. Other than Buster Brown and the Cracker Jack Kid, I can't really think of any offhand. Interestingly, in both those cases, it's a boy with long blonde hair wearing a fancy costume accompanied by his loyal dog. Cracker Jack was first marketed on store shelves in 1896, but the Cracker Jack Kid didn't show up on the packages until 1916, most likely as a direct imitator of Buster Brown, designed to capitalize on his immense popularity. One of the many imitators of Buster Brown, capitalizing on his immense popularity. When you look at Buster Brown, who's described as disturbingly pretty, it's strange to think that he was actually known as a bad boy back in his day. Basically the 1904 version of Bart Simpson. Speaking of which, whenever Mr. Burns is portrayed as a child on The Simpsons, he's totally given the Buster Brown look, which is no coincidence, I'm sure. Buster Brown was every bit as popular as Bart Simpson, and every bit as marketable as Bart Simpson. His likeness was put on plenty of other things besides shoes. 
The Buster Brown character that Richard Outcalled created was actually an amalgam of a few different people. The name Buster comes directly from Buster Keaton, who was already a famous child star in vaudeville at the time. The personality of Buster Brown seems to be modeled partly on the child of one of Outcalled's neighbors in upper-class Flushing, New York, and partly on a child Outcalled met while he was living in a high-end New York City hotel. That child was five-year-old Roger Cushman Clark, scion of a wealthy mining family from South Dakota who were in town visiting the boy's grandmother. Roger Clark was described as large for his age, having the yellowest of yellow hair, and always dressed in the same Little Lord Fauntleroy costume that would become Buster Brown's trademark. But Little Roger Clark's most arresting feature were his preternaturally wide blue eyes that, to someone who didn't know better, might give off the impression of innocence, but in reality were windows into the mind of a dedicated and relentless mischief-maker. The boy captivated Outcalt's imagination. The two became fast friends, and Outcalt drew a series of pictures of Roger that would eventually evolve into Buster Brown. Little Roger Clark lived until 1995, by the way. The two main female characters in the strip, Buster Brown's mom and his sweetheart, were based on Outcult's own wife and daughter. There is a good reason Outcult is considered the father of the modern comic strip. For one thing, he had a knack for creating compelling characters. But he also had an uncanny ability to parody so many of the conceits and sacred cows of his time and get his point across in a way that triggered your funny bone instead of your outrage button which is the essence of the satirical cartoon. A typical Buster Brown comic strip would play out like the one from May 31st, 1903, in which Buster is shown trying to give his dog a soda from a drugstore soda fountain, which ends up spilling everywhere, soaking not only Buster Brown's outfit, but the very opulent dress of a female passerby. Furious, Buster Brown's mother takes him home and beats him with a stick, as was the custom of the time. In the last panel, Buster has written out a message saying, Resolved, that druggists are legalized robbers. They sell you soda and candy to make you ill. Then they sell you medicine to make you worse. Buster Brown is a boy who never quite learns his lesson, but uses soapbox moralizing to cover up his own mistakes, which is a totally adult behavior pattern. And people of all different political inclinations could all laugh together at the truth of that comic strip. Because it's just a precocious make-believe boy in a cartoon acting like a boy in a cartoon. Whereas, if it had been a real story in a different section of the newspaper about an actual public figure, there's a good chance it would lead to a fistfight among readers and a flood of angry letters to the editor instead of guffaws and chuckles. The Buster Brown comic strip was an enormous success, instantly recognizable, syndicated in dozens of papers, trademarked and merchandised on a whole collection of different products, not just shoes, and heavily imitated by competitors, with Richard Outcall pocketing a tidy sum from his creation. But of course, Buster Brown was Outcall's second act, Basically, a chance for him to cash in on the fame he achieved with his first act, the one that originally put him on the map, and the one that we're here to talk about today, 
the yellow kid, who doesn't have a shoe store or anything else named after him anymore, but lives on forever as the namesake of yellow journalism, and was as big a sensation in the 1890s as that other yellow kid, Bart Simpson, was in the 1990s. On the surface, Buster Brown and the Yellow Kid were both precocious little boys whose childlike appearance belied a streetwise shrewdness beyond their years. Buster was from the right side of the tracks. The kid was from the wrong side of the tracks. But they both spoke plain truth to adult audiences, because unlike adults, kids can say the darndest things and get away with it. But money, money changes everything. And when we get down to brass tacks, what Outcult's two creations also have in common is that they were both the subject of substantial trademark and copyright disputes. We talk about how the 1890s were the beginning of the modern consumer age, when mass production and mass advertising entered the mainstream. And along with them came the concepts of merchandising and intellectual property. Who owns what exactly? And more to the point, who gets the money when the money starts rolling in. For example, if a cartoonist is hired by a newspaper and the cartoonist goes on to develop a comic strip that runs in that newspaper and one of the characters in that strip becomes wildly popular while running in that newspaper, well, who owns the rights to that character? The newspaper or the cartoonist? Who decides whether that character should be licensed out to sell other products and who gets the proceeds when he is? And what happens to that character when the cartoonist moves on to another newspaper? That was the situation that Richard Outcault found himself in, in 1896, when he joined so many other newspaper men in jumping ship from Pulitzer's New York World to Hearst's New York Journal, just as the Yellow Kid comic strip was at the peak of its popularity. But to tell the story right, we should really start from the beginning. For a creative, Richard Outcault seems to have lived a pretty charmed life. He went straight from art school to an industrial sign painting job in his native Ohio to making mechanical illustrations for Edison Laboratories in New Jersey. We mentioned a few of the major figures of the 1880s and 90s in recent episodes, and Thomas Edison would have to be right there at the top of that list. Edison is famous ostensibly as the inventor and patent holder of so many of the miracle machines of the late 19th century. But what really set Edison apart was his skill as a businessman and his flair for promotion, both of himself and the age of invention that he was helping to spearhead. Edison was able to marry cutting-edge technological advancements with assembly line production techniques to mass-produce the miracle machines like light bulbs and phonographs so that they would become everyday household and workplace items that you could afford to own yourself, instead of curiosities that you could only see if they were being demonstrated at a World's Fair or a traveling exhibition. Speaking of which, Edison also ran a high-functioning PR machine, which sponsored a traveling exhibition around the nation and around the world to dazzle people and to create a buzz about and demand for the latest miracle machines his laboratory had come up with. Thomas Edison was such a consummate businessman that he had a whole other workshop in Paris set up to outfit the continent of Europe with the same new infrastructure that he was creating for the USA, 
as it went from being a nation of kerosene lamps and backyard wells to a nation of centralized water and power. One of his employees at the Paris lab was a young citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire named Nikola Tesla. Tesla showed a promising enough level of aptitude that the director of Edison's Paris laboratory tapped him to come to New Jersey to work at the main headquarters, which Tesla agreed to. After a period of just six months, and for reasons that are not entirely clear, but were probably business-related rather than science-related, Tesla left Edison Laboratories and struck out on his own. Thanks to one or more of the very compelling specials that have aired on PBS and cable TV, you might already be somewhat familiar with the story of the so-called War of Currents between Edison and George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla, among others. The short version is, Edison went on to great success while Tesla foundered and died broke. The takeaway of this tale seemed to be that even in the great age of invention of the late 19th century, marketing, business connections, and a good legal team got you a lot further than straight up creative genius did. For Thomas Edison, it certainly worked out well. Over the 20th century, even after his death, Edison was as much of a household name as anybody in the country. Edison was synonymous with electricity at a time when electricity was the defining feature of modern life. Edison didn't just invent the light bulb and all those other appliances. Edison was also the name of the power company. He built the machines and he sold you the power needed to run them. In 1880, nobody had electricity. By the 1920s, it was a household necessity. That was Edison. Other than Henry Ford and his namesake, Ford Motors, there probably wasn't a name more synonymous with the modern age during the 20th century than that of Thomas Alva Edison. But as a postscript, where does the Edison name stand now in the 2010s? Today, we have a whole new crop of genius inventors working with the new technology of this information age. And when someone like Elon Musk wants to showcase his brand new game-changing electric car, he doesn't call it the Edison or the Alva. He calls it the Tesla. And now, back to our own historical narrative. Thomas Edison himself had tapped the young Richard Outcall to be the official artist for the Edison Company's traveling exhibition for 1889-90, which took Outcall all the way to Paris, where he did what every artist in 1890 dreamed of doing, studying art in the famed Latin Quarter. Once back in New York, with Thomas Edison as a reference, Outcall married, bought a house in the up-and-coming Flushing neighborhood of Queens, and found work as a technical illustrator for an electronics magazine. On the side, he worked as a freelancer, contributing drawings to humor magazines. Meanwhile, right around that same time in the early 1890s, Joseph Pulitzer noticed a newspaper out of Chicago that had begun using a state-of-the-art four-color printer in its presses. He liked what he saw and immediately ordered one for his own paper in New York. Soon, Pulitzer began running a cartoon humor supplement in color in the Sunday edition of the New York World. It was an immediate hit with his audience. Soon after that, 
One of Pulitzer's editors saw Outcault's humor drawings and hired him to draw for the world, where he would go on to create some of the first multi-paneled comic strips ever to run in a newspaper, and to invent comic strips as we know them. Multi-paneled meant that the cartoons could tell a story over six to eight panels and could, in effect, show action. Remember, this was before movies and animation, so these multi-paneled cartoons could create narratives and story arcs in completely new ways for people who may not have been the strongest readers. And of course, it was all in bold, brilliant color. Something to keep in mind as we discuss the Hearst-Pulitzer feud is that the battle wasn't just personal, it was also business. When Hearst came to town, Pulitzer had to drop the price of his daily paper from two pennies to one in order to compete. Now, the net result of that wasn't necessarily that people chose to buy one daily paper or the other. If you were already accustomed to paying two cents for your daily paper, and you were okay with it, well, you could just take your daily newspaper budget and buy a copy of both papers instead of having to choose just one, which is what a lot of people did. But the Sunday papers, with their color comic sections and special supplements, cost a full nickel, 500% more than a daily paper. For a publisher, selling one Sunday paper was equivalent to selling an entire week's worth of daily papers. And most readers didn't have the money to buy or the time to read both. They would have to choose one paper or the other. So this was where the battle between Hearst and Pulitzer would play out. And since the comic section was the biggest attraction of the Sunday paper, having the hottest comic strip was critical. Even when I was a kid, everything in the daily paper was in black and white, while the Sunday comics, and the Sunday comics alone, were in color. And that made them special. For a lot of people, the comic section is still the main reason to buy the Sunday paper, and is still the first section they turn to when they open it up. And the 1890s were probably no different. Plus, there was no color TV or movies competing for eyeballs. The Sunday comics was where the action was. And that should give you an idea of why newspaper publishers of the 1890s were so eager to have the hottest cartoonists on board. And nobody was hotter than Outcalled in 1895. The subjects of Outcalled's early panels of the world were mostly African Americans who lived in a fictitious town called Possumville, and Irish immigrants who lived in a tenement slum called Hogan's Alley. It will probably come as a surprise to no one that by today's standards, some of the racial caricatures Outcalled used fall between tasteless and unconscionable. But the Yellow Kid was a little different. The Yellow Kid didn't even have a name when he started out. He was just one member of a group of rambunctious street kids who lived in that fictional Irish tenement of Hogan's Alley. He was drawn with a distinctively bald head and big ears, and he eventually acquired the name of Mickey Dugan. Other characteristics of little Mickey Dugan were that he was barefoot and dressed in an oversized gown. When the strip began running in color, Mickey Dugan's gown was drawn in bright yellow. He quickly became the star of the comic strip and acquired the moniker of the Yellow Kid, which immediately stuck. And the name Mickey Dugan was rarely, if ever, mentioned again. 
Instead of being written inside of speech balloons, the Yellow Kid's dialogue, or inner dialogue, was written on his gown in the early strips, which became the hallmark of the comic. Instead of being a six-panel strip, the Yellow Kid was usually drawn as a large, complex panorama, with lots of little vignettes being acted out in the background and foreground, while the Yellow Kid turned to face the audience, with his fingers pointing at whatever what was written on his gown basically functioning as a Greek chorus, informing the audience of what was taking place. Now, the best source I came across about the Yellow Kid is a website set up by someone named Mary Wood, affiliated with the History Department at the University of Virginia. I'll link to her site on the Sorif TV website, and maybe in the show notes if I can pull that off. It's a good website to dive into, and has a whole series of essays nicely laid out about the Yellow Kid and his place in 1890s culture, along with links to some of the actual cartoons themselves, which are totally worth looking at. I'll have some links at the website. Another good source is an Ohio State University page that has a gallery of Outcult's Yellow Kid comic strips over the course of its run from beginning to end. I'll link to that too. Although ostensibly about children, the Yellow Kid and the rest of the Hogan's Alley gang was aimed at Pulitzer's adult audience and enjoyed immense popularity. And the reason why, according to that University of Virginia site, is that the comic strip served as, quote, a turn-of-the-century theater of the city in which class and racial tensions of the new urban consumerist environment were acted out by a mischievous group of New York City kids from the wrong side of the tracks. Outcult's gift wasn't just that he was a talented illustrator, it was that he was a keen observer of the world around him. And that world was the ramshackle tenement alleyways of the Lower East Side. Outcult was a keen observer of children as well. They were his muse. And one detail that he managed to capture in his drawings is that children are the same everywhere. Every panel that shows them being little devils also captures the innate innocence that every child has, no matter what circumstances they grow up in. The Yellow Kid was not an individual, but a type. When I used to go about the slums on newspaper assignments, I would encounter him often wandering out of doorways or sitting down on dirty doorsteps. I always loved the kid. He had a sweet character and a sunny disposition and was generous to a fault. Malice, envy, or selfishness were not traits of his, and he never lost his temper. That's Richard F. Alcott himself from a 1902 interview. We may look at the Yellow Kid comic panels today and see basically a bunch of peculiar looking waifs, but Outcall's panels were full of little cues that the people of the 1890s would have picked right up on. Even the appearance of the Yellow Kid himself contained multitudes. His head was shaved, as if being recently ridden of lice, which actually was a common sight among tenement children of the time. The kid's oversized nightshirt was meant to be a hand-me-down from an older sister, with the idea being that it was the only thing his family could afford to dress him in. 
And while wearing a girl's dress might have been an exaggeration for comedic effect, the sight of these little street kids cavorting around in oversized and ill-fitting hand-me-downs would not have been uncommon in 1890s tenement New York. The yellow kid had just two teeth, both snaggled. The other residents of Hogan's Alley were drawn with exaggerated and peculiar features as well, meant to represent some of the maladies and afflictions common to street children at the time, before the benefits of modern medicine. Despite Outcall's declaration in that 1902 interview that he loved the kid, it was never certain if readers of the Yellow Kid comic strip were supposed to laugh with the children of Hogan's Alley or at the children of Hogan's Alley. Or perhaps a little bit of both. And there might be some context for that. Now, I don't know about you, but my high school American history class left me with a distinct and lasting impression that few chapters of history would have been darker to live through or harder to endure than tenement and factory life of the late 1800s. But were the slums and sweatshops of turn of the century New York really objectively that bad? Hadn't people always been living in dismal, nightmarish situations of one kind or another since the beginning of time? While it's true that a lot of people who arrived at Ellis Island did end up going back, a lot more ended up staying. And that was by choice. Usually, when we talk about the most dismal human situations, walls, fences, and gun barrels are involved to keep people from leaving. But these immigrants had a choice. They chose to come here, and they mostly chose to stay. So what explains the strong impressions about the late 19th century urban experience that still endure? Well, it could be that we're seeing it not through the lens of 19th century history, but through the lens of 19th century art and literature. Through the lens of 19th century cameras, to be precise. And a new innovation called flash photography. Photography had already been around for a generation or two by the 1890s, and had already been put to use for journalism. In the early days, photographers loaded up their bulky gear in steamer trunks and raced around the globe to see who could be the first to photograph the Sphinx, who could be the first to photograph the Great Wall of China, etc. During the Civil War, Matthew Brady used portable darkrooms and even more sophisticated methods of composition to create vivid and graphic battle scenes and portraits from the front, which would then be printed in the daily papers and had a profound effect on people back home viewing, for the first time, actual photographs of what actual war looked like. Even today, these photos resonate deeply with our much more sophisticated 21st century eyes. Ken Burns was able to redefine documentary filmmaking by using these 150-year-old still photographs as subjects. The next wave of photorealism came in 1890 and was centered in the very New York City slums where the Yellow Kid was set, and where the tabloid newspapers found much of their fodder. What kicked it off was the publication of a groundbreaking work of photojournalism called How the Other Half Lives, Studies Among the Tenements of New York. The book was a sensation in two ways. Artistically, for its masterful use of new technology like the flashbulb, and socio-politically, for the harsh light it cast on the conditions of tenement life, of how the other half lived. 
How the Other Half Lives was the creation of a Danish immigrant named Jacob Rees, spelled R-I-I-S, who arrived in New York City in 1870 and worked in various capacities, including stints as a journalist and then as a police reporter, where he would walk the beat with the city detectives, that put him in close contact with both the city's power brokers and its most destitute residents. If Reese was not especially religious when he immigrated to America, he found religion after getting here. He would walk the city's tenements, taking in the incredible crossroads of humanity that was Lower Manhattan at the time. The quivering meat wheel of five points, the skyscrapers lit up at night with neon and incandescence, New York's electrified transit system that brought trainloads of strap hangers into downtown Manhattan every day on elevated tracks from all directions, and the unconscionably overcrowded tenements and street scenes that the trains rolled past every day, moving too fast and too high up to notice. And at that moment, just offshore, over on Ellis Island, thousands more were queued up in the shadow of that colossal statue and her uplifted torch, awaiting their chance to hop aboard the quivering meat wheel of New York City. As Reese became a man of deepening conviction, the scenes of poverty, neglect, and overcrowding on the streets of New York loomed larger and larger on his mind. He began to see it as his mission to bring these conditions to the attention of those who could do something about it. Like that other European immigrant, Joseph Pulitzer, Reese had an eye for a good story and a flair for the dramatic. Like Pulitzer, Reese saw the plight of the poor in this rapidly modernizing society as the most important and overlooked story of all in the new media age. And like Pulitzer, Reese was industrious and ambitious. Reese had run a successful advertising business with his brother for a time, using magic lantern technology to project images onto screens. The magic lantern of the late 19th century was basically a precursor to the slide projector of the 20th century and could be used to put on a pretty good show in the pre-movie era. So Reese had always been a bit of a technophile, and as he continued to use his journalistic training to document the squalor of the tenements, he was desperate to find a way to do more than just write reports about what he was witnessing. He wanted to show people instead of just tell people. He tried sketching, but was admittedly terrible at it. Photography, as it was then, was not practical for capturing the dimly lit tenement interiors or busy, darkened alleyways. But Rees read about a couple of Europeans who had developed the first flash powder technology in Germany, and, being a technophile himself, decided to order the same chemicals they used and try it in New York. And what do you know? It worked. Starting around 1888, Reese and a team of photographers were able to use this flashlight, as it was called, to light up the dark corners of New York's most crime-ridden, squalid, and forbidden neighborhoods, and capture spectacularly detailed images for the people from the good side of the tracks to look at. The flash powder meant that they could photograph at night for the first time, which is, of course, when the city is at its most dangerous and exotic. Reese submitted his photographs to magazines, along with essays he wrote to go with the photos. And while the magazines would sometimes say yes to the pictures, 
They often found the text to be too grim and too heavy-handed to publish. So, Reese would generally end up giving presentations at churches, using lantern slides made from illustrations of his photos. The subject matter was controversial, and not every church would agree to host the presentations, including Reese's own church. But he kept at it, and soon he did meet the kind of people who were in positions to print his photos and essays for legitimate publishing houses, namely for Scribner's Magazine which ran an 18-page article in their Christmas 1889 edition called How the Other Half Lives, Studies Among the Tenements of New York. This 18-page article included 19 photographs that were rendered as line drawings. Timing the photo essay to run over Christmas was a nice Dickensian touch. Literary journals like Scribner's also knew a thing or two about marketing and the power of the press. Scribner's had been at it a lot longer than Pulitzer had. They had taken up the cause of abolitionism in the early 1830s, when slavery was an institution that most people believed was wrong, but few, even in the North, really wanted to do anything about or even talk about, beyond expressing the generic hope that it would somehow just go away eventually. But over the next couple of decades, people did want to talk about it thanks to the tireless efforts of abolitionist activists like the newspaper publisher William Lloyd Garrison and books like the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, I hear he's doing great things, and Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became mainstream bestsellers in the 1840s and 50s respectively, and helped turn the abolitionist movement into a mainstream cause in the northern states well before the Civil War. What started with intimate, almost underground gatherings in small Quaker church buildings had grown into a leading cause within a decade and a major mainstream movement within two decades. That was the abolition movement. By speaking to the small but influential number of literati who would show up at the basement literary salons in the late 1880s, Jacob Rees was following in some tried and true footsteps and hoping to make lightning strike twice. Reese used his journalistic flair and photographer's eye to compose a series of shots of life in the narrow streets and inside the crowded tenement houses themselves, and to provide accompanying text meant to shock the upper and middle classes into paying attention. And it worked. Pretty soon, it seemed like the conditions of the slums, and especially the plight of the children, were all people were talking about. How the Other Half Lives is the perfect title for a book of revelatory photojournalism. It's both moralizing, making you feel guilty for being one of the privileged few, and salacious, inviting you to come in and look at the candid photos of these impoverished people in all their squalor. Since it was equal parts heavy-handed prose and groundbreaking photography, how would this book have been received at the time? Did people respond more to the words? or to the photos, or maybe to a little bit of both. Maybe the sum of this book was greater than its parts. Maybe the photos were so mind-blowing because they captured more detail, more humanity on their subjects' faces than anything that had ever been published before. And maybe with their minds blown open by these photographic breakthroughs, the unflinching words of Jacob Rees had fertile ground to be poured into 
and take root in the minds of his very erudite and very influential readers. Here's a little sampling of Reese's writing style. Keep in mind, this is a description of a nice spring day in the tenement, when everybody's in good spirits and outside enjoying the sunshine. Along the curb, women sit in rows, young and old alike, with the odd head covering, pad, or turban that is their badge of servitude, hers to bear the burden as long as she lives, haggling over baskets of frowsy weeds, some sort of salad probably, stale tomatoes, and oranges not above suspicion. Ash barrels serve them as counters, and not infrequently does the arrival of the official cart en route for the dump cause a temporary suspension of trade until the barrels have been emptied and restored. Hucksters and peddlers' carts make two rows of booths on the street itself, and along the houses is still another, a perpetual market doing a very lively trade in its own queer staples, found nowhere on American ground save in The Bend. The Bend being that particular section of street that Reese is subscribing. The writing continues. Two old hags camping on the pavement are dispensing stale bread, baked not in loaves, but in the shape of big wreaths, like exaggerated crullers, out of bags of dirty bed tick. There is no disguising the fact. They look like, and they probably are, old mattresses mustered into service under the pressure of rush of trade. Stale bread was the one article the health officers, after a raid on the market, once reported as not unwholesome. It was only disgusting. Here is a brawny butcher, sleeves rolled up above the elbows, clay pipe in mouth, skinning a kid that hangs from his hook. They'll tell you with a laugh at the Elizabeth Street police station that only a few days ago, when a dead goat had been reporting lying in Pell Street, it was mysteriously missing by the time the awful cart came to take it away. It turned out that an Italian had carried it off in his sack to a wake or feast of some sort in one of the back alleys. And just to be clear, Reese doesn't single out Italians. Everybody gets a mention in How the Other Half Lives. Reese describes the street scenes in unflinching terms, but he also throws in some history, some local politics, some social parables. And he writes with a sense of urgency about the relentlessness of humanity's struggle to free itself of the cesspit it crawled out of and the constant battle we wage to keep from getting pulled back down. The haves of the Gilded Age have successfully escaped this pit, and they enjoy the fruits that the Age of Invention has to offer. But the have-nots have a different relationship with the Industrial Age, being chained to one of its factory machines in the best of times, facing hunger and destitution in the worst of times, circling the drain a little faster with each downward spiral. This is how the other half lives, Reese argues. And unless we, the people in positions to help, do something about it, the situation will only get worse. With the subtext being that if we don't do anything to break the cycle soon, the other half won't just be out there across the track somewhere. They'll be right in your backyard and mine. Improving the lot of the disenfranchised wasn't just an act of charity like tossing coins to a beggar. 
It was a way of making sure society as a whole was living up to its potential. The Industrial Age was taking America to new heights and greater plateaus. But it also meant that if it were allowed to continue unabated as a laissez-faire society, there would be a widening chasm between top and bottom, with a weakening middle. Which meant that if the whole thing were to crumble, those at the top would have the furthest to fall, and the most to lose. So, making sure the social base was strong and that the center held, wasn't just an act of charity by the haves. It was an act of enlightened self-interest and self-preservation as well. And that is the essence of progressivism. The Progressive Era and the Gilded Age generally have soft starting and ending dates. The exception being the start of the Progressive Era, which is usually dated at 1890. And that is precisely because 1890 is when How the Other Half Lives was published. Oh yes, this book is considered to have kicked off the entire era, and to have launched the genre of muckraking journalism, which would dominate the next few decades of American literature until the lost generation of Fitzgerald and Hemingway in the 20s. Beyond just painting a picture of the sprawling tenements in words and photos, Reese was adept at tying the saga of the other half into the grand sweep of American history and the soap opera of New York politics and corruption, to the point where people in high places sat up and took notice, not least of which was a young, reform-minded member of the United States Civil Service Commission who was new to government, named Teddy Roosevelt. In 1895, Roosevelt was named Chief Commissioner of the New York City Police and was in a great position to implement some of the reforms Reese was calling for. Within six years, Commissioner Roosevelt would be President Roosevelt, and his reformist agenda would become the nation's agenda. Reese's photographs didn't only capture the human condition of 1890s New York, but also the incidental details of the new infrastructure around them. The architecture, the billboards, and the streetcars. The Sturm und Drang of the new city. All the things that we would call urban chic begin right here with Jacob Rees. How the Other Half Lives created a whole new language, a visual language, to chronicle the modern age that was taking off in New York and other cities. The photographs themselves became celebrated as templates of the issue that was suddenly the topic of every cafe conversation, how the other half lived in the era of the industrialized city. It was kind of like how Vietnam photographs and protest photographs and hippie photographs turned into cultural touchstones of the late 1960s, becoming shorthand for the entire sweep of social changes that was happening and taking on meanings far beyond their original context. If you happened to work in the visual arts yourself in the 1890s, as Richard Outcault did, you couldn't help but take notice. And this would be the milieu from which Hogan's Alley and The Yellow Kid and the modern American comic strip itself would emerge. From the collective buzz generated by How the Other Half Lives and those arresting photographs by Jacob Reese. 
This conversation will continue on the next episode of The TV Room. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. Find us in the yellow pages at Sorif.tv. That's S as in Stockton, O-R-E, F as in Fresno. TV.